1 Timothy chapter 6. We come to the end of this part of our series in Paul's first letter to Timothy, what commonly referred to as the pastoral epistles because of the pastoral nature of Paul writing to a particular person, to Timothy. Uh, But the words are not just for one individual, they are for the whole church. And uh, there are many things that we have gleaned from this series and uh, the, we titled this series, the, uh, Fighting the Good Fight, which is a phrase that appears several times in these letters. And uh, it speaks of the warfare imagery, of the struggle, and the diligence and the endurance needed in the Christian life. And uh, tonight's closing message is no different as we come to the end of this chapter in this book and find a stirring charge from Paul to the apprentice Timothy calling upon him and us to persevere in the oftentimes perilous journey of serving as messengers of the gospel, as we take God's word to those in desperate need of its life-giving power. Paul will use various, uh, use intensity of language uh, to encourage Timothy and us to quicken our steps and to persevere, to not give up in the battle that is often the Christian life. We're reminded frequently that the time is near when our mission will be over, when Christ returns. But until that time, we must press on with great diligence. And so we're encouraged to go the distance, that we might bring the message of Jesus Christ and him crucified to the four corners of the globe. Let us read then from 1 Timothy chapter 6, beginning in verse 11. But you, O man of God, flee from all this and pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, endurance, and gentleness. Fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession in the presence of many witnesses, in the sight of God, who gives life to everything, and of Christ Jesus, who, while testifying before Pontius Pilate, made the good confession. I charge you to keep this command without spot or blame until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which God will bring about in his own time. God, the blessed and only ruler, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone is immortal and who lives in unapproachable light, whom no one has seen or can see, to him be honor and might forever. Amen. And then down to verse 20. Timothy, guard what has been entrusted to your care. Turn away from godless chatter and the opposing ideas of what is falsely called knowledge, which some have professed and in so doing have wandered from the faith. Grace be with you. This is God's holy and inspired word. Let us pray. Father, your word affirms that the Christian life is long and tiresome and weary. And we thank you, O Lord, that you give us strength for the journey. You give us power for the struggle and the fight. And we pray that tonight we might gain strength, gain energy, and spiritual power as we press on in fighting the good fight of the faith. We ask these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen. It's fourth down and goal. Just seconds remaining in the fourth quarter, 
your team is down by four. A field goal will not do. You must go for a touchdown. It's the bottom of the ninth. Full count. Two outs. Bases loaded, and of course you're down by three runs. Every schoolboy's dream, the chance to hit a grand slam to win the game. You're in a grueling marathon and on the final mile of the race. In every sporting competition imaginable, the test of the true champion comes down to the final minutes, to the last round. Can you persevere to the very end? The most important thing is not how you begin, but how you finish. The Christian life, as we have noted, Paul writes and illustrates here, the Christian life in general and the pastorate in particular is compared to a fight in the Greek arena. According to Homer's epics, the ancient Greeks would compete on at least five different types of competitions. Sprinting, wrestling, throwing the javelin, boxing, and even the famous chariot race. In the midst of a great contest, the fighter grows weary. His opponent is inflicting upon him great blows to the body. With every blow, his body stings in greater agony. But to prevail, the fighter must not give up. For the troubled pastor... For the discouraged Christian layman, the temptation is always very high somewhere along the long pilgrimage of the Christian life, the temptation to quit. The devil fills our minds with great doubts. Is this really all worth it? Does God really care about me? Why must I go through these trials and deal with such difficult circumstances? Do I have what it takes? We grow weary in the fight. And for that reason, the great Apostle Paul, understanding our challenges and temptations, writes these final words in this letter to remind us that we are empowered by the truth of the gospel of God's grace, that we might finish well. Tonight, as we look at our text, I'd like us to consider Three elements of the truth. How we must fight for the truth. We must speak the truth. And we must guard the truth. Paul calls Timothy a man of God. This is the only reference in the New Testament other than uh, in the second letter, 2 Timothy, not referring to to Timothy himself. But the only reference here in the New Testament to encourage Timothy to remind him that he has been called by God, that God has enabled him and equipped him to serve, that he has been crucified with Christ. The mentor also reminds his apprentice of where he has come from and who has gone before him, that he is not alone. This reference, man of God, was applied to Moses, David, Elijah, Elisha, and several other of the prophets these giants who have gone before us, on whose shoulders we stand, 
fought the same battles. And they have inspired us that we too must preserve to protect the truth in a world of ignorance and darkness. In our fighting effort, we're instructed to first flee and then pursue. In verse 11, Paul instructs Timothy to flee these things, obviously referring to the things that he's written before earlier in chapter 6, namely the false teachers. There are false teachings and the love of money. Paul used the same exhortation in 2 Timothy 2.22, exhorting Timothy to flee the evil desires of youth. And it's most likely that Paul is referring to things such as pride, the pride of self-confidence, the arrogance of boasting, the hunger for recognition, the greed for riches, and the lust for indulgent pleasures. The image reminds us of the young Joseph, sold as a slave into Potiphar's house in Egypt, and how Joseph had to flee, literally, for his life and his purity when pursued by the wicked wife of Potiphar. Likewise, the man or woman of God must fight hard, fleeing the seductions of a world that would seek to compromise us, undermine the efforts of the church, and so bring dishonor to the name of Christ. So not only must we flee, we must also pursue. The first goal in our pursuit is righteousness. Now there is a definite sense of the Christian life to pursue a righteousness that means blamelessness, that means integrity and purity of holy living before God. But I would contend that this attribute is listed first in this list to suggest that we're referring to the ultimate righteousness that we don't attain to of our own strength or performance, but it's that righteousness that God provides for us in Christ alone, that which he earned and merited and grants us as a gift through his sacrificial atonement for our sins. And then as we learn to abide in Christ by faith alone in his precious blood, we are told to also put on godliness, a common term in the pastoral epistles, as well as faith and love. We are called to endurance, something that we can build up and develop as we train in godliness. And lastly, we're called to gentleness. Not an easy task for the rugged warrior, lest he has spent quality time in the arms of a tender, good shepherd. The vigorous language continues in verse 12, exhorting us to take hold of eternal life. Well, how do we do that? It means to believe the gospel. To hold fast to the testimony of the truth. This is not a kind of easy believism. Faith is never a passive quality. And yet while it is, yes, a gift of God that's given alone by the Holy Spirit, the Bible calls us to cling to faith. To cling to the hope of eternal life. Now the NIV, which I read from, perhaps misleads us a bit when it writes 
the eternal life to which you were called when you made the good confession. I believe the ESV translation is a little more clear when it says, the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession helps us understand that the calling to eternal life did not begin when you first believed. Your calling to eternal life began from eternity by the will of God before creation. Nevertheless, Paul does seem to be hinting at or developing a balanced view of God's sovereignty and human responsibility. God is both fully sovereign in his election of choosing us according to his will to come to faith in Christ, and nevertheless, man is always completely responsible to respond to the gospel message, to cling to it, to grab it, to take hold of it by faith alone, to appropriate the salvation of Christ in his precious blood. The language here, I believe, echoes the spirit of John the Baptist, of whom Jesus says in Matthew chapter 11, verse 12, From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. A holy violence, a rattling and a shaking of grasping hold and not letting go believing in the promises of God. Friend, let me ask you tonight, have you taken hold of this? Have you received the very message of the gospel? Has it taken a hold of you to believe and to trust and have assurance of eternal life through Christ alone? And if that is true of you, if you have laid hold of this, if this is your assurance, if this is your faith, are you in the fight? Are you waging the good warfare? You see, we don't have the option of being civilians. We cannot be mere neutral bystanders. Bystanders, if you're a Christian, you are called to be a soldier. And though while we get hurt... And wounded and grow sickly, we are called to go forth into the battle. To fight hard and to fight well for the honor and glory of Christ. But not only must we fight to finish well, we must also speak the truth. Paul refers to Timothy's good confession before many witnesses, as well as the testimony of Jesus making the good confession before Pontius Pilate on the day he was crucified. What is the good confession? I believe it's simply the gospel testimony. In John chapter 18, we see this dialogue between Jesus and Pontius Pilate, where Jesus affirms that he indeed is a king, yet his kingdom is not of this world. He goes on to tell Pilate the very purpose of his birth, to bear witness to the truth. To what truth? The truth of who God is. The truth of man's desperate condition under the judgment of God and the only way of salvation, the way of escape offered through Christ, who came to die in our place. 
to bear the penalty that we could not pay, to give the forgiveness of sins and the hope of everlasting life. This was the good confession, that Christ came to speak. And so likewise, we could assume that Timothy's good confession was the time that he made his public testimony of faith, perhaps at his baptism, when he was received into the corporate body of believers. Perhaps this even included his call to ministry, in which he took up the baton to follow Christ as an emissary of the gospel, to spread the good news to those perishing. Paul charges young Timothy to keep the commandment spotless and blameless. And I believe what this means is, is our, calling to, our, our calling in our Christian vocation. Just as the good soldier must obey his orders without fault and error, so the Christian must fulfill his or her responsibility with integrity to preserve a reputation that grants us the privilege to bear testimony to the truth. Well, what is it that we speak of, and what, what is it that sustains us as we face opposition against the gospel message? In verses 15 and 16, we're given a glorious vision of Christ's return. The blessed Father, the one and only Sovereign, will indeed send the Son back to reign upon earth, over heaven and earth. Worldly leaders are mere puppets, are but posers compared to the everlasting reign that will be Christ right before our very eyes. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords, before whom every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. He is immortal, the very fountain of life, who by his life was indestructible. Death could not keep its hold upon him. He triumphed over the grave. He was so holy that the blinding light of his splendor keeps back fallen men who in their corruption cannot approach the glory and the beauty of the Holy One and the God who is invisible, who hid Moses in the cleft of the rock, allowing him to see but the backside of his glory. To this God be glory and might forever. It seems that worldly kings never tire in trying the patience of our good Lord. They want godlike status, the honor of their subjects, and control over the affairs of the estate. The early church suffered much persecution under the policies of the arrogant Roman, Roman Empire emperors who compelled the people to worship them along with the pantheon of their false gods. Well, the well-recorded story has it that in 155 A.D. in the city of Smyrna, an angry crowd was stirred up demanding the life of the aged church leader, Polycarp. Polycarp was on the run from the authorities, trying to hide, not wanting to stumble into martyrdom unless it was the will of God. Well, circumstances were such that he realized it was the will of God. And so he let them catch him. 
and it was brought before the Roman proconsul, who out of kindness urged the elderly Polycarp, in consideration of his age, to make a compromise, to simply worship the emperor and spare being subject to the flames of judgment. Polycarp replied, For 86 years I have served him, and he has done me no evil. How could I curse my king who saved me? Polycarp made the good confession. He, in doing so, demonstrated the very power of the truth of the gospel before a watching crowd who are perishing in their sins. Paul Carp's example reminds us of the biblical truth, that we ought to fear not those who can kill the body, but to fear him who can cast the soul into eternal flames. Polycarp made the comparison. Flames and torment for but a moment. Compared to the eternal flame that sinners would suffer forever. And he gladly submitted to the flames of Rome and the hopes that some of those sinners might be spared. Recognizing the power and the truth of the gospel over life and death to the glory of God, and for the salvation of sinners. We're called to fight for the truth, to speak the truth. Most of us won't face martyrs' flames, and yet each of us has opportunities to make the good confession before family members at the holiday time, with neighbors, with friends and co-workers. Let us untie our tongues, unzip our lips, loosen our voices to proclaim the mystery of godliness, that Jesus Christ alone is Lord for his glory, and so that those perishing might find the way, the truth, and the life. We have a final charge And that is to guard the truth. The truth is like a precious gem. It can be stolen. The truth is like a fragile vase, easily shattered. We must protect it. In guarding the truth, sometimes we feel like Frodo, the halfling in the Lord of the Rings, who is overwhelmed by the threat of the evil Lord Sauron and his dominion, his minions of wicked orcs, and yet we are not defenseless against the schemes of our enemy. In 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12, Paul uses the same exact language of guarding the deposit, guarding that what has been entrusted to you, pointing to the fact that it is ultimately God who enables us to guard what he has entrusted to us. And then two verses later in chapter 1, verse 14, we are told explicitly that it is only by the Holy Spirit that we are enabled to guard the truth. You and I are but jars of clay. We are weak, easily broken. But God in his marvelous wisdom has considered it worthwhile. 
for his own glory, to entrust us with the most precious treasure. And he calls upon us to guard it well, relying upon the strength that he provides. Lastly, Paul ends his letter with the all-so-familiar, grace be with you. In fact, every single letter of Paul ends with these words, except for the book of Romans, which ends with a glorious benediction. Uh, Some letters elaborate more on the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, but the message is very clear, that we live by grace. We are nothing without grace. We can accomplish nothing without God's unmerited favor. In John 15, Jesus tells us, apart from me, you can do nothing. Without grace, we are helpless, but wretched creatures. But with grace, we are mighty warriors. We are great endurance runners. And we are made bold to defend the truth and to speak the truth to those who are perishing. By God's grace, let us go the distance to be all that God intends for us to be in the likeness of Christ, for his honor and his glory. Amen. Dear Jesus, we thank you that you fought the good fight, that you finished the race, that you have trailblazed before us, that you have defeated our enemy, and that you call us in your likeness to follow to labor and to fight and to struggle and to endure. And we thank you that you give us your grace to endure and to persevere to the very end. Be magnified and glorified as we press on by faith alone. We pray in your matchless name. Amen.